Amen. It's great to see each of you here on this Lord's Day at the Branch Church Milledgeville. Thank you for joining us as we worship our Lord and Savior this morning. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We will be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. How's everybody's bracket doing in uh, March Madness here? Good? Yeah? Kyle, you got your still going? I doubt that. Okay. <laughs> you can repent later for lying. Okay. All right. So um, what we will be studying this morning is God's glory. God's glory in all things. The main point I think we see in this passage is this. The glory of God is revealed in all things, in strength and in weakness, in strength and in weakness. I would even say most especially in and through our weakness, God's glory is revealed. Chapter 9, as we approach chapter 9 this morning, um, when I fear my faith will fail, do you ever feel as though your faith may fail? Have you ever been in those times in your life where God has ushered you into such a time, such a season maybe in your life of suffering, of hardship, of affliction, of pain, of trouble, where you may utter these words, I fear my faith will fail. In this passage this morning, it is my prayer that, that I, along with you, would take heart in that next line that we sang just before the sermon this morning, Christ will hold me fast. John chapter 9 begins a new section in John's gospel account. After the doctrinal prologue we studied in chapter 1, John tells us of Jesus' witness in gathering his disciples from John 1 to John 4. This leads to a period of conflict with the unbelieving believers beginning in John 5 through the end of John chapter 8 where we ended last week. Now, now, where we begin in John chapter 9 today, begins Jesus' ministry among those who believe he advances toward the cross. As he advances toward the cross, Jesus, his ministry among those who believe in him. This is kind of, the, uh, in preparation for the sermon this morning, listening to and reading other pastors and theologians this is as if Jesus, if we look at it as a mountain that he has climbed through his earthly ministry thus far, he has peaked in his earthly ministry and he begins to hit the downhill side of that mountain of ministry. What awaits him is the cross. John 9 records events in Jerusalem immediately following the departure of Jesus from the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus himself is largely absent from mention in this chapter. When I read verses 1 through 23 and next week when we continue in chapter 9, you'll notice that Jesus is largely absent from being named in the chapter here by John. Not that he's absent at all, though, right? Jesus himself is largely seen here and through his works, through especially this blind man that we will read about here in just a moment in verses 1 through 23. What we read mostly is the kind of religion that rejected him and the response of those who believe. We will see a religion that rejects Jesus, continuing to reject him among the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, in and among that time and that generation, 
as Jesus was ministering, sharing the gospel, but we will also see a response of those who believe in the Christ. Join me in prayer now before we read God's word. Father, thank you. Thank you once again that we, Father, by your grace, are allowed to be brought here by you as your people gathered together freely, openly, freely, without persecution, without hindrance, to freely worship you, to give to you, to usher unto you what it is you desire the most to be worshiped above all, above all others, above all other things. So Holy Spirit, I pray that today as we read through verses 1 through 23 in John 9, that you teach, that you instruct, that you convict us where it is needed, that you comfort us where it is necessary as well, that we all the more see and know what is true, that Jesus, you will hold us fast. Lord, I praise you. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember that statement as we go through this passage today, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, 
for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. God's glory and weakness. Even though Jesus had removed himself from the public eye, from the public sphere, his saving work still continued among the needy, those who were both spiritually and physically in need. Even as he was rejected by the ancient people of God, Jesus was active in calling out a new people who would follow after him in faith. The comparison we see here between John chapter 9, verse 1, and John chapter 8, verse 59 is significant. John 8 ends with the Jews taking up stones to throw at Jesus, but being it was not his time yet to die. He had his appointed time. He was approaching that time. That time was not his time to die. He escaped. I love the way MacArthur put it. This was a miraculous escaping. It was as if Jesus was there one moment and he was gone the next. John 9 begins as he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. We must compare these two situations. At the close of John chapter 8 and verse 59, Jesus was standing in the, temp in the temple to teach the religious leaders. When they rejected his teaching and desired to throw the stones at him, Jesus, as we said, moved away. Here, beginning in chapter 9, in verse 1, as he was moving, so as Jesus was escaping the threat, as he immediately removed himself to get away from those who desired to kill him with those stones, as he was moving, as he was going away, he saw a poor, afflicted man. Then he stopped to help him. I want us to first consider the intentional moving and going of Christ. Everything, absolutely everything Jesus accomplished in his earthly ministry was done with gospel intention. Perfectly done with gospel intention. Should it be any different for us? As followers of Jesus Christ in this present age, should it not be that everything in our life that we do, that we seek to do, that we desire to do, should it not be wrapped and consumed in gospel intentionality? Do we notice those in need? Do we care to notice those in need? We have missional communities here at the Branch Church live as a community of believers on mission to live with complete and full gospel intention. That should be the goal of our MCs. That should be the goal of our faith family. To be the catalyst that turns the heart of Milledgeville upside down for the glory of Christ above all. That should be our goal. That should be what we hope to see come to pass by the grace of God, through the work of God, in and through us in this city. How do we accomplish this? Well, first, we must agree with and take part in pure religion, as James tells us in, chapter, in James chapter 1, verse 27. 
Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So what James is telling us there is if we sacrifice our lives, our time, our money, our effort to help those who cannot help themselves in their time of need, in their time of affliction, then we will not be consumed by the fleshly desires in a fleshly world. This religion, this effort and activity that is in being pure and undefiled is measured by compassionate love compassionate love for others. Those without parents or husbands were an especially needy segment of the church at this time, in that generation. Since these orphans and widows were usually unable to reciprocate in any way what was given to them, caring for them clearly demonstrates true sacrificial Christian love. I've been encouraged. I've I've been so encouraged to see and hear the activities of our MCs and what we've been accomplishing and seeking to accomplish in this MC semester. Caring solutions. Caring for those, for the unborn image bearers of God in the womb that would be murdered by their mothers. Supporting I'm walking alongside an organization that cares for those image bearers as well as those mothers. Care items for high school students. You can see the box over there on the table. An ongoing effort to care for high school students in this area and in Wilkinson County to care for those who absolutely cannot care for themselves, who can't even have a toothbrush or toothpaste. Did you use a toothbrush this morning? Did you use toothpaste this morning? There are those who can't. So meeting practical needs. The community cookouts that RMC has been doing right out here in the parking lot, we've seen actual relationships begin to be born in that with people in this community that we serve, that we claim to love. When Lily and I went around passing out flyers down the road a few weeks back, it was just, it was an amazing opportunity to do gospel mission for something as simple as announcing a cookout. Come and join us for free food. If we desire to love our community, if we desire to love our city, That is communicated through our action. Jesus came for those who are broken, weak, and lost. This is a reminder for us as we meet the physical needs of the needy, we must not neglect seeking to meet the eternally important spiritual need. Matthew chapter 9, if you want, you can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 9, you can hold your place, and John chapter 9. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, we read this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. I I read that in preparation, knowing that it's tax season, and I thought, man, I don't know if I would have done that in this season of life. Uh, Because I know we haven't filed our taxes yet. We don't want to. 
But as Jesus, as the Christ, the example that we must follow, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This would freak the Pharisees out. How dare he mingle and sit at table and fellowship with sinners, especially tax collectors who, along with lawyers, get their own little bucket of sinners, right? Not biblically. Human opinion. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But sinners. Whether you're a lawyer or a tax collector or whatever you do in your life, this is our example. This is our example to follow as followers of Christ. John 9 unfolds with the discussion between Jesus and his disciples concerning this, concerning this man who was born blind, who was blind from birth. Why does suffering, disease, and death exist in this world, in this present age? It does. We see it clearly. Why does it? The simple answer, sin. Sin. The disciples in this passage here in John 9 had good reason to believe this man was born blind due to sin, the sin of his parents. The scriptures are clear. The existence of such are in the world as a result of the fall that we read in Genesis chapter 3. From that point forward to now, suffering, destruction, affliction, pain, trouble, sorrow. Personal sin may well be the reason for personal suffering. After all, John chapter 5, we have studied this and read over it, but let me read verse 14 in John chapter 5. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, this was the man who was invalid for 30 years. Jesus heals him. Jesus finds him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It causes me to pause as I was reading and studying this passage. It causes me to pause, and it caused me to pause and ask, when reading the disciples' response to this man's blindness and correlating it with his sin, the sin of his parents particularly, had they not read the book of Job? Had they not studied the life of Job, the disciples did not consider there could be an alternative solution. They posed their question in an either-or condition, assuming the sin of the man's parents was the cause of his blindness. They also seemingly assumed that anyone who has an affliction suffers in direct proportion to the sin that has been committed. 
Again, the book and life of Job dash such a conclusion. We, uh, Jennifer and I, Lana and Lily, as we continue our machine reading plan through this year, we just completed reading through the book of Job. And it amazes me every time I read through the book of Job. I just, I just want to reach out to Job's friends, friends in quotes maybe, and just grab them and say, shut up. <laughs> just stop speaking. Just be there. It reminded me of a time in our past church life, uh, a brother, Jim, had uh, developed cancer, bad cancer. Took him to the, led him to the hospital to have chemo treatments. And us as men from our small group would go and be with him. And going to be with him, in that moment, I found myself not being able to say anything. Not being able to utter a word but instead just to be there with him and pray over him. Listen, when you find a brother or sister in Christ that is suffering, don't think you have the answer. But please be there. Be there with them. Love them as Christ has loved you. How are we to respond in suffering? We must never jump to a conclusion, as the disciples did here in John 9, that particular sin has brought about a particular suffering for that person. This truth concerning this blind man makes this point here. Jesus assured them that the blind man was not born this way because God was punishing him or his parents. What, Jesus, what did Jesus mean when he said in verse 3, but that the words of God might, works of God, rather, might be displayed in him, that in his suffering, in his blindness from birth, that the works of holy, righteous, almighty God might be displayed in him. Simply this. This man was born blind so that at the appointed time, Jesus would heal him as a testimony to Jesus' power and his divinity as God. Well, that's mean, God, that you would cast blindness on this man from birth, that you haven't healed him up to this point, and that you've waited until this moment to do it. Wasn't that a mean God? that we serve? No, that's a holy God. That's the holy God. That's the holy God that will not share the spotlight with anyone but himself. God used this man's suffering, his weakness, his affliction, his inability to physically see to in that moment glorify Christ. It is as John said, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you'll hear Bailey, Kyle, and I probably say a few times before we actually get to it in John 20. But it is, is as John said, but these, but these, 
the signs by Jesus performed by him in his earthly ministry recorded by John. Because John himself said, there are far more that I could tell you about, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why this man was born blind. That's why in this moment, at this time, on that day, Jesus came to heal him. Our Lord displayed his identity as the Savior and the Son of God in healing this man. When we suffer, let me stop there. When we suffer, because as a Christ follower, you will suffer in this life. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you will suffer in this life. Luke chapter 14, verse 27. Just listen as I read. Jesus, talking to the large crowds that were following him at this time, said some, made some statements to them to say, look, you're not all going to follow me because I'm going to tell you what it takes to be a follower of mine. This is one of those statements we read in verse 27 of Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That is clear. The cross, an image, an instrument of suffering, of great suffering. It's not some gold-ordained ornament around your neck. It is a suffering, an instrument of utter, complete suffering affliction, sorrow, and suffering. When we suffer, we must trust that God knows what he is doing and, what, and that he works in and through the pain, the afflictions of his people for his glory and, and for our sanctification. Because daily as we pick up our cross to carry it, knowing, not just knowing, but that we willfully, willfully be suffering servants of Christ as he suffered for us, that we can suffer in his glory, for his glory, as we willfully do so each day. It is incredibly difficult to endure lengthy suffering, though, isn't it? We live in human flesh. We feel pain. We know pain. It is incredibly difficult to endure lengthy suffering if, if, when, when you look to Christ, the weight of the suffering is greatly alleviated. It may not be removed. But when we look to Christ, when we gaze upon Christ, when our mental, our emotional, our desirous effort is upon the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that suffering can be greatly alleviated. As you consider this passage and this man, God called this man to many years of pain for the glory of Christ. Consider the everlasting rock that is Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 26, if you want, you can turn there with me. Isaiah 26, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. 
the prophet Isaiah wrote, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see the action verbs there. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is active volitional effort on our part. And it is most especially hard in times of suffering that we train and discipline our mind to stay, be stayed upon Christ that we may fully, completely, wholeheartedly in this present age and forever trust him. Isaiah goes on. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord is an everlasting rock. The Lord is an everlasting rock rock who cannot be moved by any suffering in this present age. He is an everlasting rock and he is faithful for us to think upon and trust in. God's glory and strength. Jesus reveals his healing strength and power bringing glory to almighty God the process here used by Jesus to provide healing of this man's eyes is quite peculiar, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I tried to picture myself standing there in that time. It was a bit more common in that time than it would be in 2022. If someone came along, knelt down, spit in their hands, rubbed their hands in the Georgia clay, and began to put it on your eyes tend to think most of us would turn and go the other way. But this wasn't just any man. This was Christ. I agree with both John Calvin and A.W. Pink, great pastors and theologians, concerning the use of spit and mud by Jesus. John Calvin first, and then I'll read what A.W. Pink had to say. Calvin said this, just as man was at first made of clay, so Christ used clay in restoring his eyes to show that he had the same power over a part of the body that the Father had exercised in creating the whole man. A.W. Pink says this, It prefigured the Lord pressing upon the sinner his lost condition and need of a Savior. The placing of clay on his eyes emphasizes our blindness what he says there, our spiritual blindness was physically, practically emphasized by using this man, not just to this man, but everyone who was there standing around at that time, in that moment, emphasized that this man at that time and the others who did not believe in Christ were spiritually blind, as were we. John doesn't provide the exact reason for what Jesus did, but we do see John's emphasis here, and it concerns the pool of Siloam. John makes a point of telling us the pool's name means sent. Why was the name of this pool so important for John to mention here? We have to see the context of this encounter here in this passage. Jesus had insisted that he is the one he is the Messiah. 
He is the Christ. He is the one sent by God to bring light, spiritual, saving, eternally living light to the world. Remember the frequent allusions to water also in John's gospel account. Amongst others, remember what we read in John chapter 4. John 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. For true and eternally spiritual cleansing, you must go to the true and righteous Siloam, to the one Christ who was sent by the Father to save sinners like you and I. Another reason Jesus might have sent the man to the pool of water was so he could be seen by others. While Jesus was hiding, keeping himself from the public eye at this time, the works he did in his healing ministry, in his gospel ministry, in and amongst the people, he still wanted others to see, to see what had occurred. When Jesus gives you sight to see, when God, by his grace, regenerates you to be reborn to new life in Christ, he wants you to be seen by others. Just as there was here, as soon as the man washed in the pool and returned seeing, there was controversy. There will be the same, there is the same in our world today whether in South Asia delivering the gospel to Hindus, at your job, in your classroom, maybe with your own family, when the true gospel is fully communicated and revealed through our obedience to Jesus Christ, there will be controversy. Jesus would not issue the command to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 19, if he did not want us to be seen and in being seen to be heard and in all that Christ be made known to all. We've seen God's glory in weakness, his glory in strength. Now in this passage, we see God's glory amidst sin, that God's glory can even shine brightly amidst sin. The Pharisees' concern and focus was not on what had happened, but when it happened, not on what miraculous activity occurred, but the day on which it occurred. Jesus did not violate God's law. Let's be very clear about this. Jesus did not violate God's law in healing this man on the Sabbath day, but only that of the Pharisees. God's law taught that on the seventh day, in Exodus, Exodus 20, verse 10, you shall not do any work. Okay? God, you say you shall not do any work. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to define in minute detail 
what was and was not work, spelling out 39 categories of activities that they said violated the Sabbath. Did God do that? Did God, when he said what he said in Exodus 20.10, go on and provide a list of things that they could not do on the Sabbath day that would equate to work? The Pharisees did. Jesus violated the Pharisees' law in three different ways. First, he spat on the ground and made clay. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Doesn't take a whole lot of effort to spit. Making clay was defined as manual labor by the Pharisees. It was in one of those 39 categories that they made on top of God's word. Not under the submission of the word of God, but on top of the word of God. Second, the rabbis forbade healing in cases in which the patient could wait. So, imagine the Pharisees approaching this blind man and saying, we know you're blind from birth, but you can wait one more day. You can wait, you can, you can remain blind just one more day. I mean, come on, you're used to it, aren't you? You've been blind from birth. I, I, that's not compassionate love. And then third, there was a specific injunction to applying saliva to the eyes. Yes, the Pharisees actually wrote out an injunction against applying saliva to one's eyes. Jesus did not accept the authority of human traditions, especially when rabbis' rules were in conflict with the intention of God's law. Nor should we. It is so encouraging to see pastors who will gather their, their fellowship, their faith family on the Lord's Day in Canada, knowing full well they would be arrested for doing so. Why? Because they knew they had to follow God's law, not the tyrannical leader of Canada's law. Jesus not only ignored but openly violated the Pharisees' code. Man-made rules encourage us to look down proudly on others rather than to humble ourselves before God. God's perfect and holy law is, des is des designed to show us our sin. That's what the law did for each of us. God, through his wisdom, through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, revealed to us that we can in no way meet perfectly his demands of his law. The law revealed to us that we are broken sinners, dead men and women walking that need a Savior. And his law brings us to Christ. Those who know you best, those who know you best are typically those closest to you. And typically, those same people are those who know you the most. Your desires, 
your dreams, your goals, your failures, your weaknesses. That was the case here with this man. As the Pharisees went around. Do you know this man? Can you claim that this is the man that was blind and now sees? Who did they have to go to? His parents. The ones who gave him birth. The mother who gave him birth. The father who helped raise him. His parents knew him. They also knew for certain something drastic had changed in his life. Not just the physical ability to see, but they knew something drastic had occurred in this man's life. Yet when it came down to it, not even his parents would stand with him. Sin, destruction, feeling forsaken, feeling forgotten. Christ had become this man's everlasting rock. When you feel forsaken, when you feel forgotten, know this as a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ is not the rock that can be moved by the waves of suffering that slam against it. Christ is the rock who will now and forever and always stand firm to catch you, to hold you, to help you buffet the waves of suffering in this life. Even amidst the destruction of war and the suffering produced, the gospel still prevails. Christ is still proclaimed. God still saves sinners. Listen to this report from a missionary in Ukraine reported by the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism, ABWE. Listen to this as I read this report. It's been three weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. Three weeks of indescribable hardship, loss, confusion, and pain, but God's still moving through his church. One place we've seen evidence of God's handiwork is the incredible ministry of Omega Day Church in Moldova. My friend, Pastor Mahai and ABWE missionary Rich care for 25 to 30 refugees every night, feeding them, praying for them, and letting them rest at the church. For some, it's the very first time they've been safe enough to truly rest since the invasion. The church members are also pitching in, taking turns, being with the refugees and caring for them in whatever way is needed. Just this week, a couple members led two refugees to Christ. Why would God bring Russia to invade Ukraine at this time in this moment in human history if it were just for two souls to be saved? Is it not enough? What are we called to do? Look at verse 23. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We are of spiritual age. We who have surrendered to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We 
have been called by Christ to be seen, to be heard, that he be known by all. Share the gospel. Share the gospel in season and out, in suffering and outside of suffering, for yourself, for others, the goal. The goal, the ultimate goal is not your healing. It is not what you may get in this present age. It is what you have in eternity. It is what you have that you can give to others that they may have in eternity. The goal is Christ. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. I praise you that even in the midst of suffering, of pain, of hardship, of affliction, no matter how short, how long it may be, that even if it take our very lives from us, that we who are in you, Lord Jesus, we know that you, being our everlasting rock, that we have you and you have us. Praise be to you above, over all, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.